And so here we go. How many of you remember the little thing you did in Sunday school or vacation Bible school? You made a thing like this. Come on. You know how to do it. Everybody, turn to your neighbor. Come on, niece. Yes, you. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, come on, like this. Make a church. Okay? Make a church. Okay? And what do you say when you do that? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. See all the people, right? Do one more time. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. See all the people, right? Now take a look at that for a minute. People. We're talking about the spiritual markers of a spirit-filled church. The church is only as spirit-filled as its members. The church is only as spirit-filled as its members. The Holy Spirit does not fill a building. And I think too many times we focus on the exterior, the building, the steeple, the numbers of us who are in the building, who make up the membership or the body or the attenders, and we forget to realize and recognize that a church is only as spirit-filled as its members. And if we, as the individual members of a church, are not in and of ourselves individually being filled with the Spirit of God, then our church will not become a spirit-filled church. So don't, in this study, make the mistake of thinking that we're talking about the church in general or we're talking about Emmanuel Baptist Church, but we're talking about the membership, those of us who are inside of the church individually who, who make up the body of Christ called Emmanuel Baptist Church. We must be filled with God's Spirit, and if we are not, then God's church will not have the marks of a Spirit-filled church. We began our study in Acts chapter 1 a couple of months ago, where Jesus with his disciples promised that the Holy Spirit would be given. They would soon be baptized, not with water, but with the Spirit of God, and that when they were baptized with the Spirit, they would then receive power, power to do what? Power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Christ ascends, leaves him here. They make their way to Jerusalem, and they live in what we call the upper room for a few days. An upper room. Let's kind of draw this. Now, we're going to have to have a, 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 little, a, a little thing here. Do not make fun of my drawing. Thank you, Larry. Don't you need to go back to Colorado? Amen. We need you to, yes. Lucinda, you can stay here, but send him back. Yeah. Don't antagonize Larry. He just gets worse. All right, we're going to draw... Looks like the upper room, right? Looks like the house. No, they didn't have roofs, but go with it. Here's the upper room. Right? Now, in the upper room, we know that for several days, there are 120 disciples who are waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promise. Now, some are men and women, right? They're not just men, but they're men and women. 
I know that kind of puts a little kink in some of you men right there, but some of the women needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, Miss Wendy? Our former children's minister who just applied yesterday for the position, by the way. No, she did. And so here we have men and women, 120 of them, in the upper room, waiting. And the Bible says that when they did, the Holy Spirit fell, okay, as tongues of fire and landed on them. And they received and they were filled. This young lady didn't have any legs there. And received the Holy Spirit. And they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. 120 in the upper room. You with me? Following that, there was a big rumble when that happened. And um, what happened is a large crowd of people began to gather out here. Okay? There's a whole bunch of people here. Okay? Just imagine. A whole bunch of people gather. And Simon Peter comes out. And he preaches this beautiful message about the gospel of Jesus. It is the first spirit-filled message that was ever preached. And he proclaims the message of Jesus to these thousands of people who are there who need to hear the gospel. That's a megaphone, by the way. And so he they didn't have a, a wireless mic. And so he's proclaiming the gospel, and he declares that Jesus, who you crucified and buried in a tomb, rose from the dead and has now ascended and has been exalted unto the Father in the Holy of Holies, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he says to them, this, this thing that we receive, called the Holy Spirit promised in Joel it's Holy Spirit is that right? I'm just testing see if you're with me there's not holly it's holy spirit just making sure you guys are awake that's okay the Holy Spirit that we received, you too can receive. But you have to repent and receive Jesus. And baptism comes. And then, as a result of all that, you, like us, after de- declaring your, your faith in Jesus, will receive the Holy Spirit. When you, when you repent and receive Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit just like Joel promised. And so as a result of that, we learned last week that what happened? How many? 3,000 placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And so now we have the first church. This is the first church. Okay? And I'm going to call this the model church. This is the first church, and I'm convinced is the model church. And so this first church is now formed. This is the first church in Acts, the end of chapter 2, verse 41 through 47, where we see the Holy Spirit, they have not only received, 120 have, 
but now are filled with the Spirit and basically being filled. These thousands of people now, 3,000 who received Jesus, not only repent of their sin and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they now become recipients of the Holy Spirit. And they begin then to form what the Bible then calls the church. So let's take a look in Acts 41, uh, 2, 41 through 47, the marks, the spiritual markers of a spirit-filled church. There are seven, and we're going to go through them very quickly. So buckle up. Let's go. Number one, the first marker is their common identity. They have a common identity. These These people have a common identity, and the common identity that they have is Christ. Notice verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000. There were added that day about 3,000. Now notice, there were added that day. They were added to what? They were added to the 120. There are 3,000 of them. Okay? And they were added, plus 120. Somebody do the math, it's what? 3,120, right? So now we have a church that's approximately 3,120 in membership. They were added. Who were added? Those who received. We saw it last week. That word received means they welcomed the message that was proclaimed through the Spirit-filled Simon Peter, who later was a coward, but now having received and been filled with the Spirit up in the upper room, is now with incredible boldness, incredible power, has proclaimed the gospel. These 3,000 have been saved, and they, upon repenting of their sin and receiving Jesus just as he asked them to do in the invitation that we saw last week, they too now, like the 120 in the upper room, are now filled with the Spirit. There is a common identity, and that common identity that they're sharing here as they are added to each other is, first of all, they repented of sin, they received Jesus, and they also then received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's this common identity here that these two are now sharing as one church. So all of them now have not only repented, received Christ, but have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They have the same Savior, they have the same salvation, and now they have the same Spirit. Everyone who belongs to the church of Jesus Christ needs to have the same Savior, the same salvation, and they will receive or become recipients of the same Spirit. So there's this common identity that they have. So in order to experience the first markers of a Spirit-filled church is the common identity that we found through faith in Christ. The same Savior, the same salvation, and the same Holy Spirit. That's important. You may claim to have the same Savior, but not the same salvation. The doctrine of salvation is critical. And if you can mess up the doctrine of salvation and the process and the means by which you're saved, you don't receive the Spirit. So there's a common identity here between Savior, salvation, and Spirit. Number two, there's a clear devotion. The second spiritual marker I find here is a clear devotion. Notice that it says here, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and of the prayers. And they. Who's the they that is described here? They is the 120 and the 3,000. The 3,120 are the they. These 3,120. 
120, I'm convinced, devoted themselves to three, very, four very important things. This word devotion means they continually developed themselves under this, this practice or the activity in a way that it became their devotion. What did they devote themselves to? Very easy, to the apostles' teaching. Why did they need to be taught anything? Why did the apostles need to teach them? Because these 3,000 came out of Judaism. Remember, they were in Jerusalem because why? They were there for the feast. They were there because it was recently the Passover. And so they're there because of that. And their practice and their church, I had a friend of mine during uh, this conference we had last week said, the difference between the first church and our church today is they don't have a whole lot of things to overcome to be becoming the church that Christ wants them to be. I contend with that because I think these three were stooped in their own traditions of Judaism. And so Christology became the central theme of not just what they were hearing, but the central theme of the Old Testament passages that they were teaching from. See, what Bible did they have? They had the Old Testament. And so they were teaching Christology out of the passages of the Old Testament, and the prophecies and the principles are there, and they were adding Christology or Christ as the center aspect of all that was in the Old Testament leading up to Christology in their teaching. And so they were, they were teaching them. They were helping them learn and understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to, to know Christ, to follow Christ, to serve Christ, and to share Christ. Does that sound familiar? I ask you, does that sound familiar? Some of you are awake. Okay. And so the apostles' teaching. Now, notice fellowship. This word fellowship is an interesting word. It's a word that simply means they hung out together. They were in community together. They liked to relate to each other. They came out of this Judaism. They were being taught. And so they were gathering together. Many believe in, the, in Solomon's court, which is on the eastern side, just outside of the, uh, of the temple. And so they were there and they were meeting. And so they were hanging out together. They were fellowshipping together. They were, they were sharing meals together. Because notice it says not only fellowship, but in the breaking of the bread. Now, this is what many believe is hospitality, but these 3,120 right now are, are becoming a family, and they, they are so large that how are they going to have better community? How are they going to get to know each other better in each other's homes? And many believe that when they went to each other's homes, guess what they did? Being great Baptists that they were, they ate, right? But also many believe that Simon Peter suggests I mean, that, that Luke suggests in this recording that he is also alluding to the Lord's Supper. For you see, the Lord's Supper was also synonymous with the practice of meals that were being held in people's homes. And so, as a result, you see the passage where the Apostle Paul says, don't, don't abuse the Lord's Supper. It's not a place to eat a meal, but it's a place to observe the Lord's sacrifice. And so, there was some confusion that much later. And so, many believe that they were eating in, in each other's homes, in this hospitality, uh, having potlucks, who knows, and they were also having the Lord's Supper in the small units in hospitality in the homes and then notice and prayers the early church spent a great time praying together in Solomon's court now you want a large crowd to gather at Emmanuel Baptist Church just call a prayer meeting I'm being facetious aren't I this church 3,120 
spent a lot of time in prayer together. Now, some of them were private prayers, and many of them were public prayers, but they came together for prayer. Prayer was a vital aspect of their worship. And so they had a clear focus. There was clarity in their purpose as they were gathering together. They sat under the apostles' teaching. They had hospitality and fellowship. They broke bread together in meals, and they observed the Lord's Supper. But they also gathered for worship, and a part of that worship was, was an incredible, deep-rooted aspect of prayer. There was a clarity about their devotion. Number three, there was They were captivated souls. They were captivated souls. The word captivated means they were captured or captivated by what? They were captivated by the respect and reverence for the Lord. Respect and reverence for the Lord. Notice Acts 2.43. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That word all is an interesting word. It means respect and reverence. But notice this respect and this reverence that captivated each and every soul. What souls are he talking about? We're going to go that into in a minute. But what, what captivated their souls? What, what, what made this awe-inspiring reverence and respect for God? That a reverence and respect for God that was awe-inspiring, that was that was that caused them to to be in fear, to be in reverence, to have respect for the Lord. Um, And so what was that? Notice the many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. There were miracles that were happening. And as a result of these miracles, um, there was a deep awe and reverence that was taking place because, you see, they understood that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was actively working through the apostles, and they knew that God's presence meant his power, and his power meant a reverence and a respect for him. They were captivated souls in this awe-inspiring reverence because God's miraculous, supernatural things were happening, which was a sign. It was, it was an opportunity for them to recognize the presence of God. They knew God was present, and they were, they, they were filled with, with reverence and respect. And like Jesus... The reason he did all the miracles that he did in the New Testament was not to prove that he could do them. It was to prove his authenticity and to prove that he was sent by God the Father to do these incredible supernatural things that manifested to them, that revealed to them that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And that's the reason why the apostles up here, the, the, these, these 12 who were up here, were doing these things was to authenticate their message and to show not only the new believers, the 3,120, but also the ones who were not a part, who were unbelievers, or the soon-be believers, were awestruck with reverence and respect. I mean, we don't see here in this early stage of the New Testament church any persecution whatsoever. Why is that? I think because the unbelievers, the hostile people that crucified Christ, were in awe of what God was doing through these apostles. They were filled with fear and reverence and respect. So I think these who were filled, every soul, has something to do with those who crucified Jesus. These hostile forces who did not like this newfound cult who were rapidly spreading, and they eventually, we will find in the book of Acts, become jealous of their popularity and the spread of Christianity. 
but they were in awe. They were in reverence and respect, so they didn't attack the early church. I think it's also the unbelievers, because as they saw the apostles doing these supernatural, incredible, miraculous signs, they were curious, and then they listened to the authentication of this message that came because of these signs and wonders. They listened then to the gospel. But I also think that these incredible supernatural things were all inspiring to the church. Because it helped them realize and see that God was, in fact, active among them and active through them. And isn't it always great to see when God moves among us, how inspiring, how, how, how reverential we become when we suddenly walk away and go, oh, God really moved here today. And we walk away with this newfound reverence and respect. So I think this awe came upon every soul, the, the 120, the 3,000, uh, those who would soon be converts and were curious and were listening, and even those who persecuted the church. These were captivated souls that were spirit-filled that were part of the church. Number four, we see continued unity. This is an incredible thing that happens in the church, and, and I think it's one of the elements that often is missing in many churches today, a continued unity. Notice verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Um, I have the wrong scripture up there, don't I? It should be verse 44. You got your Bible, take a look at it. Pastor made a mistake. Verse 44, and all who believe are together and had all things in common. I think it's interesting here, it says, and all who believed. Now he narrows the focus to all who believed. Those who believed, not only the 120, but the 3,000, all of them. Not just some of them, but all of them. This is not uniformity, but it is unity. And all who believe, the 120 plus the 3,000, were together. That word together means that they were together physically, they were get together spiritually, they were together doctrinally, they were together in their focus, in their objectives, in, in what they were called to do on their mission. They were all together. And notice that they had all things in common. They had all things in common. That all things, I think, means all things. Everything. In other words, there was no disharmony. There was no disunity. There was no strife. There was no contention. There was no fussing. There was no fighting. There were, you're on my turf. Or, or There was none of that going on. It was a continued unity that lasted for a pretty good season in the early onset of this New Testament church. It's kind of like when you take a look at that when, when we form the church together and this is the church and this is the steeple and you open the door and you see the people and you see that the people in that little illustration are what? They're joined together. They're together. They're united. They're walking hand in hand, serving the same Lord, worshiping the same Savior, uh, studying the same scriptures, they are agreeing and being taught and they are embracing one another. There's no contention, there's no disunity, there's no distortion, there's no none of that division going on in this early church. And I think that is a huge sign of a spirit-filled church. It's when there is a unity among those of the body, all who believe. It's, it's interesting in over the 39 years of pastoring that you can see pockets of unity sometime in a church, but not all of the church sometimes is unified as it should be. But in a spirit-filled church, as we see in this church, in the first church, 
It wasn't just this little group over here and this little group and then this little group here, but it was the whole. It was all of them, all who believed, not just a few, not just some, but all who believed were together. They were unified and they had all things, everything in common. Number five, they had committed values. Take a look at the text. It's entering in verse 45. Where it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were, these believers were selling. That word selling means they were exchanging. And they were exchanging what they had for something in exchange. That's what means selling. That word really means to exchange. And what they exchanged were their possessions. And that word possessions in the original language really means lands. It means property. There were some that, this is not their homes that they live in, but they had additional properties and they had other things that they owned, some lands or some property that they would then sell. They would exchange it for something that was beneficial to the body. And also, then they, they, they also took their belongings these are the things that belong to them. These are, are not lands or, or not, not those kinds of things, but they're simply just an open-ended, nondescript, these belongings that we have, these, these treasures that we have, we are then taking them and exchanging them. And once we exchange them for some monetary gain or for something that can be used in the body, notice they distribute the proceeds to all. There is a separation. That distributing means they separated them and they distributed them to all who were a part of the body. Anyone that had need. And I think it's important to underline that word need. That word need is an interesting word. It means necessary, necessary but lacking. That's what the word means. Necessary but lacking. In other words, what they needed was necessary. Because if the need wasn't met, more than likely they would die. Now, let me ask you something as Americans. As Americans, I don't know if anybody in here would qualify or classify themselves as wealthy. Anybody here classify or qualify yourself as wealthy? Anybody? Are you wealthy? You're wealthy in the spirit. I'm not talking about that kind of wealth. I'm talking about monetary wealth. Yes. I don't know of any of us in here, but the reality is, compared to the rest of the world, outside of the United States, how many of us are wealthy? Come on. Come on. How many of us are wealthy? Those Oklahomans are not raising their hand over there. Yeah, you better. We are wealthy. Define a need for me. No, don't, don't, don't really do it, but what do I really need? I mean, we define needs today as really wants, their desires, right? But the reality is that our needs are pretty much, we have those. But we lump our desires, our wants, those extras, many times as needs. And we see it all, all week long, people coming into the church and saying, I have a need for food. And my question is, I can smell cigarettes on your breath and your clothes. Why are you buying $6 pack of cigarettes and not food? 
I have a financial need, but I have cable in my house and a new car that I drive, clothes on my back, and yet I have need. I have a cell phone in my pocket. Is a cell phone a need? Well, I, I can't live without a cell phone, and I ought to have cable. We as the church need to understand that this is not communism being described here. It's not a compulsory gift. It is not something that is commanded. These people, out of the generosity of their heart because of the grace that they have received from Christ, are, are, are aware of the real needs that someone has. And these people are not asking that their needs be met, but they are cognizant, they understand, they are visibly seeing genuine heartfelt needs because without this need being met, this person will die and they sell what they have and possess and give it to that person so that their basic needs can be met. They have a committed value. You know what the value is here? It is others before myself. That's the value. Others before myself. Now imagine a church that has and puts everyone else's needs above my own. Imagine a church like that. That's a spirit-filled church. And oftentimes, you know, I have, I have a need for certain songs to sing. Are we getting a little personal now? I have a need for this. And, and we put all the, but the reality is, are they really needs? Or are they wants and likes and preferences? And are they putting me ahead of anyone else? Imagine a church filled with people who are filled with the Spirit who said, I'm putting everyone else's needs ahead of my own. And I'm willing to serve and to do whatever I can so that your needs can be met. Well, I know, Pastor, well, what if they don't meet my needs? Well, then they're the reason your needs are not being met. Just guess what? They're not spirit-filled. <laughs> because if they're spirit-filled, they'd be, they'd be aware of your need, and they would seek to meet you. You wouldn't have to tell them what your need is. They would see it. They would recognize it. And make sure, though, it is a need as we put each other's needs ahead of our own. Number six, consistent practices. I'm going to have to go through this very, very, very quickly, but notice they're putting the gospel in motion. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Notice, and day by day. Some of us have a hard time coming to church on Sunday. I, I had a conference two weeks ago and uh, we sat for four days. It was hard for me to sit for four days, seriously. I don't do that well, and I must be honest with you, I stood sometimes in the conference in the back because I, I just don't sit for that long a period of time. And they were saying to us that the common average church member today says, I give you three units of my time a week, and that's it. Three. Three. You only get three, three hours of my week. That's it. You don't get any more than that. And I'm thinking, well, in the early church here, they came together how, how, how often? Day by day. What if every day we gathered up here for church? We have a hard time gathering. The average church member comes twice a month. 
And it's no wonder that we're not a spirit-filled church. Because I'm convinced you can't be spirit-filled unless you're gathered together with others. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 24, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a habit of some, because the Lord's on the way and you better be ready. And coming together helps you prepare for the Lord's return. I remember when I started ministry 39 years ago, the average attendance was a minimum of three, maybe four times a month. But the longer I'm in ministry, the less that becomes reality. And the modern-day church doesn't expect its church members to be there more than twice a week and twice a month, and they only expect their church members to give them three hours of their time a week, three and I wonder what kind of church we've become. And no wonder we're resulting then to try to strategize and to move our people with worldly principles and precepts that come out of the business world rather than the Bible. And day by day, what did they do? They came to the temple together in, the court of, in Solomon's court. The thousands gathered together every day. They got together every day and they met in the temple for worship. Every day they broke bread together in their homes. Every day they received their food. Every day they, they sat together and they ate together. What an incredible opportunity it is for them just to gather together as a church family because they've been out and then they come together. And, they, and you know, there's nothing like being at the table together in a home and talking about your day. But they also daily shared in the Lord's Supper more than likely. But notice every day they gathered gladly. They were glad to be there. That word glad is an interesting word. It means that they were, that they were glad-hearted, that they exhibited, that they experienced, and they enjoyed a gladness of heart. Isn't it great when you come to a church and you come across a bunch of people that have smiles on their face and they're glad to be there? Some of us sometimes need to say that to our faces. Because we don't act very glad to come together. But notice the graciousness or the generosity. They were generous hearts. That were generous means they were sincere. It means that they were without hypocrisy. It means that they genuinely cared for each other. And because of the grace that they had received from Christ, they were generously then giving generously to the church and to each other. And last, notice they were praising together. Every day they came together for praise and for worship. But also notice they had favor with the people, which is more than, more than explaining to us the reason why these people had such incredible results when they proclaimed the gospel because people from the outside were seeing what was going on the inside and they, they said, well, maybe we need to go check it out. And then lastly, notice a collaborative gains. Verse 47 is an interesting verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being served. Ever increasing number of those who are being gathered. Why? Because the gospel was being proclaimed by those apostles. And as the gospel was going forth, people were coming to faith in Christ. Who added to the church? The apostles? The disciples? Who added to the church? The Lord added to his church. Some of us are here looking for a church. If you're looking for a church, I want to ask you, is the Lord leading you here? Is he adding you to the church? 
Don't join a church unless the Lord leads you. But on the same side of that coin, don't leave a church unless the Lord calls you to leave. For the Lord adds and takes away from his church. But they were projecting and proclaiming the gospel, and they were being saved. Now, here's what I want us to take a look at. 120 in the upper room, right? 3,000 are saved, right? Now, imagine with me for just a moment, you have the lower room. I mean, it stands to reason, right? That there, in the upper room, there was a lower room, right? How many of you would agree with that? Lower room. Come on now. Had to be a lower room. If there's an upper room, there's a lower room. Now, was there a basement? If they lived in Wichita, they do. I never had a house with a basement talking in Wichita. I've learned to love it and like it. At first, I thought I was in a cave somewhere when I first went to the basement. They had an upper room and a lower room. Now, if they had an upper room and a lower room, do you imagine there were people in the lower room? Huh? Come on. Yes? Maybe not 120. I mean, 120 people up in the upper room, they weren't going to leave the upper room. Why weren't they going to leave the upper room? Because the Holy Spirit, they had been promised in the book of Joel and, and, and Ezekiel and other places, the Holy Spirit was coming, and they were not going to leave. So how did, they, how did they get fed? Maybe there was a kitchen down here. I don't know, but there had to be people in the lower room, right? There was people down there. When the Holy Spirit fell, where did he fall? What does the Bible say? Come on, what does the Bible say? In the upper room. So that means that the Holy Spirit did not fall in the lower room. And the people in the lower room did not receive the Holy Spirit. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe. Come on, shake your head. Maybe. Here's the problem that I learned in our church conference two weeks ago and what I think is true today. The reason why most churches are not filled with people who are spirit-filled is because most church members are living down here rather than up here. Let me say that again. Most of us are living in the lower room rather than living in the upper room. If we don't live in the upper room as a church and we live in the lower room down here, we won't have a bunch of people in our church that are filled with the Holy Spirit. We won't have the marks of a Spirit-filled church. And guess what? We don't see anybody saved. Did you know that I saw uh, statistics on a, uh, the, the baptismal statistics at, a, at an association which had a large number of churches and half of their churches didn't baptize one person all year? Not one person all year. A church that doesn't baptize one person, at least one person a year, do you think they're living in the lower room? Huh? Do you think the Lord's going to add to a church where its church members are filled with members who are living in the lower room? What's a lower room living? I don't like the music. I don't like the curriculum. I don't like the pastor's jeans.
I don't like Mark's tone on his songs. I'm mad at so-and-so. They hurt my feelings and they didn't say they were sorry. I want what I want. That's lower room living, isn't it? So here's what I want us to challenge ourselves, church, since this is a kind of a low attendance weekend for us because it's a, a holiday weekend. From now on, here's what we need to ask ourselves and each other. Hey, brother, sister, are you living in the upper room or are you living in the lower room? Which is it? Because if we're individually living in the lower room, we're not going to be an upper room church and we'll not see any conversions. The Lord won't add to our church. And there have been many churches in our community right here around us that have died and closed their doors and have sold their property to other people because they have what? They've lived in the lower room way too long. We need to be members who are living in the upper room, not in the lower room. And if you're not living in the upper room, brother, let me invite you to come up to the stairs from the upper room where the Holy Spirit not only can fill you, but he will use you in the body of Christ. So how do we close? Easy. Here's, here's the end. It's 12.06. We need to build an upper room church. I believe God wants to fill this auditorium, every seat in this house filled. And I believe at some point he's going to do that. But he's waiting on us to build an upper room church. Each of us as members filled with his Holy Spirit. And I think he wants us to become an upper room church. The way to become an upper room church, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to repent of your sin, receive him as your Savior and Lord, receive the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and come join us as we build and become an upper room church. And if you don't know Jesus today, in a moment as we extend an invitation, we're going to have over here what I call the next steps area. We have pastors and we have some ladies who have been trained and they will love you and they will help you become an upper room person to leave the old life and come and help us build as you become an upper room believer. If you're a believer today and you're looking for a place to belong, come help us become an upper room church. But if you're not interested in becoming an upper room believer, please join the church down the street. Seriously. And if you're a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church and you're spending too much time living in the lower room, isn't it time we left the lower room and climbed the steps to the upper room and to live a spirit-filled life? so that individually we become the church that Christ wants us to be and corporately we become the church that I believe he wants to bless. Let's pray.